The Tom Woods Show, episode 1303. Prepare to set fire to the index card of allowable opinion. Your daily dose of liberty education starts here. The Tom Woods Show. Men, if you want to dress for success, you want to look smart and well put together, not baggy and clueless. No more off-the-rack suits for you. This week, my listeners can get any premium Indochino made-to-measure suit for just $359 at Indochino.com when entering Woods at checkout. Hi, everybody. Tom Woods here. Today's topic, well, I guess the book we're discussing speaks for itself. The Rise of Victimhood Culture, Microaggressions, Safe Spaces, and the New Culture Wars by Bradley Campbell and our guest today, Jason Manning. Jason Manning holds a Ph.D. in sociology from the University of Virginia, and he teaches sociology at West Virginia University. Jason, welcome to the show. Uh, Thank you. All right. This is an interesting book because what you've done in here, well, of course, you're well aware of what you've done, but one particular thing you've done is you've taken an extremely contentious topic and you've somehow managed to discuss it as dispassionately as I've ever seen it discussed. You really, even though, you know, you do have a point of view about it, you really are adopting the language and ideas. And one would hope, in a way, a kind of the detachment of the kind of social scientist we would all like to see examining this kind of question. So, first of all, congratulations on being able to do that, because I'm not sure I could have duplicated that feat. (laughs) Thank you very much. Okay. So let's start with uh, maybe some definitions, because it is a bit provocative to use a term like victimhood culture, and no doubt that will be taken as an insult, and you do defend your use of the term. So why don't you describe why you chose that term and what you mean by it? Well, to answer that, we kind of have to go back to the beginning of how we got into studying this. My co-author, Bradley Campbell, and I both specialize in the study of moral conflict such as all the different ways people handle grievances and and handle disputes and what they get mad about and how they handle their differences. And within that, we've both tended to focus on the study of violence. So about every year here at West Virginia University, I teach a course, Sociology of Violence. And when you look at the study of conflict and the study of violence, there's a distinction people often make between what they call honor cultures and dignity cultures. And this is not our concept. It's a concept that's been around for a while. A lot of psychologists, historians, anthropologists use it. And basically an honor culture is a social setting where there's a strong, strong emphasis on physical bravery and on maintaining your status by proving your bravery. So this is a type of social status people can have, honor, and it could be lost very easily if you're thought to be a coward. And that can include being someone tests you by slighting you in some way, testing your limits, and you fail to respond with force or with aggression, and you will be labeled a coward and dishonored and lose standing in the eyes of your fellows and your community and be deeply shamed. And we see these sorts of cultures throughout history. They're really widespread, but some examples listeners might be familiar with are something like in the American South before the Civil War, when the plantation-owning class, they would do things like fight duels You've insulted my honor, you've offended me, and I'll challenge you to a duel. And they go out with their pistols or their swords and prove their honor by fighting each other. The reason that defends their honor is it shows their bravery and their willingness to be aggressive at any sort of provocation. And so in honor cultures where this form of status is very important, people tend to be really touchy. 
if your worth as a person hinges on proving you won't be trifled with and will not tolerate any aggression or insult, you're constantly on the lookout for anything that might be aggression or insult or a slight. And you're always worried people might be testing you and seeing if they can push you further. And so you see in these sorts of honor cultures, a high rate of violent conflict. People are very touchy and sensitive to slights. And they also tend to handle all their grievances through aggression, through violence. To handle it otherwise is to, again, show that you're cowardly and lose honor. So they don't go to the cops. They don't complain to the general public. They use aggression. And in the 1960s, a sociologist, Peter Berger, wrote an article on the obsolescence of the concept of honor, saying, you know, we still have the term still around, but it's kind of vestigial. Nowadays, uh, we have honor codes at colleges, but it doesn't really mean the same thing it meant in, say, the Old South or amongst the the aristocrats in Europe 100 and 200 years ago. Now it's kind of just general integrity, but there's just no longer this connotation of, A, violence being attached to it, or B, it being a fragile thing that can be taken by others. Because when you look at honor cultures, honor is something that can be taken. You can be dishonored through someone else's actions. If you don't respond when someone insults you or puts you down, you're dishonored, you're humiliated, you're shamed. And Berger said, you know, people nowadays view fighting duels as some weird alien relic of the past. And the idea of being concerned if your honor or, or that you've been dishonored, at least in modern Western societies, is, is a strange thing. This notion of honor is gone by and large. It, it survives in some pockets of society. You might think of the importance of respect in a poor ghetto community where people will kill over being disrespected or among gang members or among prisoners and other settings where toughness is still valued, but our elites don't kill each other anymore in duels like they used to. And so what Berger was recognizing is that this moral concept, this form of stature or social standing was largely obsolete amongst the middle classes in the modern West. And he argued instead what people emphasize is a form of moral worth called dignity. And this is the idea that we're all human and all have the same inherent worth as humans. And this worth is inalienable. So unlike honor, it can't be taken away. You can't be disdignity like you can be dishonored. If someone insults you, you still have your dignity. If anything, they've lowered theirs by not respecting yours. And you can say something like, well, be the bigger person, walk away, show that you know these insults are beneath you, have a thick skin. And you see a different sort of moral emphasis in modern societies where no longer do you need to be sensitive to slight. No longer do you need to be on the lookout to make sure someone's testing your limits. It's even commendable not to do this. You know, To be someone who has a thin skin or is very sensitive is a, is a way of lowering oneself rather than a way of rising and, and proving one's worth. And along with that, you also get this increasing deviance of violence and aggression. So, okay, you've been offended, you've been slighted. The first thing to do is ignore it. But if it's severe, like if it's an, a physical assault or someone's taken your property, okay, well, then you can go to the law. Don't take the law into your own hands, you know, unless you really have to in a self-defense situation. Don't do that. That's actually deviant. That's wrong. That will not win you glory and renown. That will get you in trouble. The thing to do is go to the law, let the law handle it. And there's no shame in that. You did your best. You tried to be the bigger person. And if it gets too bad, then you can go to the courts. And so you see this distinction in the violence literature between cultures of honor, which tend to have a high rate of violent conflict, and cultures of dignity, which tend to be more peaceable 
they rely on legal settlement for severe things and tend to brush off verbal conflicts and slights of other kinds. And then what we saw when we started looking at phenomena on campuses these days, such as complaining about microaggressions or complaining that a conservative speaker was a threat to safety and needed to be banned or uh, demanding trigger warnings for content that might harm the listener. We saw people having a sensitivity to slight that reminded us of honor cultures and also a willingness to complain to others and to depend on authorities that was very unlike honor cultures, a bit more like dignity cultures. And we saw that People were not emphasizing necessarily, you know, their toughness and their bravery. Oh, you know, I'm, I'm going to prove I'm brave by, by attacking this person who slighted me with some racial microaggression. Nor were they emphasizing, you know, I'm better than this. I'm not going to get upset by it. Uh, my worth's my worth no matter what. They were emphasizing their status as victims. And you started seeing people use this term oppression Olympics. Have you heard that one? I have, yes. Yeah, I've heard it in, in everyday speech, and it, it taps into something real. You get people arguing over whose groups had it the worst, who really faces oppression, who really needs to shut up and listen, and who really is privileged. And you see things like privilege being used as a insult, a way of shaming people. Check your privilege, so admit that you're privileged, confess your privilege as if it's a sin. And so you had this notion, it seemed like, in the way people were handling their disputes, that they were emphasizing their own vulnerability and victimization and even taking some some pride in it and exaggerating it in some cases or making it up in some cases. So, for example, you get things like hate crime hoaxes where people claim to be the victims of hate crimes that never happened for attention or to advance a political agenda for whatever other reason. So we saw this cluster of phenomena of all people emphasizing victimization, manufacturing it sometimes whole cloth, and at the same time condemning privilege and condemning those who seem to be stronger or have it better, much like in an honor culture, they would condemn cowardice or shame cowardice. And so we hit upon this term victimhood culture to try to emphasize that it seems as if in this setting, victimhood was a status, a kind of moral worth or moral status, much like honor used to be in, say, the Old South, and sort of like dignity was and still is in mainstream U.S. culture. It's a source of making moral claims, and it's something people vie for and are sensitive to. And so we use that term to try to capture this part of the moral culture that it privileges those seen as victims and condemns those seen as privileged, which is a very long-winded answer, but that's our reasoning for using that term, which is for good or for ill been the part a lot of people want to focus on in our work. Right, no doubt. Now, that gives us kind of a bird's eye overview of the situation. But what I'd like to know is where do you think it came from? Because, it, of course, political correctness has been around college campuses for some time. But that's not quite the same thing. This is, I think, a new development. And yet it seems to have come out of nowhere. Do you have any way using the tools of sociology to try to understand where it came from? Mm. One of the things we do in our work is drawing from the sociology of conflict, particularly a tradition founded by sociologist Donald Black, is looking at how the pattern of social relations between the people in a setting or in an interaction shapes the sort of grievances they're likely to have and the ways they're likely to handle them. And I won't go into every last facet of this, but for example, we talk about a couple of things like 
like grievances over slights and things that seem to put one person down or one group down, they tend to arise where people in groups are relatively equal. Maybe not perfectly so, but relatively equal. Uh, that's where people are very sensitive to inequality. And vice versa, you get people who are extremely unequal, like think about you know, the class system of medieval or ancient societies. There you take that sort of inequality for granted, and a lot of your sensitivities are to things that reduce inequality, like oh, the servants you know, not being properly deferential or whatnot. And so we explain some aspects of this moral culture with features like the level of relative equality and diversity of the college setting. And you know, the diversity aspect has been that's increased in the past 30, 40 years. We also look at not just like the content of the grievances, but why people handle them the way they do, why they do it by complaining to the authorities, demanding safe spaces, demanding bans on speakers, and shaming people on social media. And there, one of the main things we point to is people come to rely on third parties to handle their conflicts for them to the extent that third parties are superior in status, like people rely on the state often, you know, this being a much more powerful entity, they rely on that to handle their conflicts. And in the tribal society, they might rely on like the village elders or whatnot. And to the extent they have ready access to these things. And that's really a big part of this, why it's accelerated in recent years. There's been this tremendous growth in the size and scope of administrative authority on campuses, including the creation of new agencies and departments charged mostly with policing these types of offenses or with addressing concerns related to verbal offenses or so-called discrimination or other things that fit into this moral framework. So you have this extensive network now of authorities who are encouraging students to bring your complaints here, bring your grievances here, that they're training them to recognize these things and be sensitive to them. And so that, we think, incentivizes a lot of the growth of this culture. Another factor that's changed recently is social media, which really began to explode five, six, seven years ago. And one impact social media can have is you can think of public opinion as being another kind of third party you might rely on, much as people might rely on authority figures. And what social media does is provides everybody with blanket access to this sea of potential supporters out there. And a lot of the time people are just, you know, sending their complaints out into the wind, airing them, you know, to whoever is willing to listen. And every now and again, though, one of these complaints goes viral. You get the big shame storms and the hashtag activism and sometimes very real consequences, people being fired or forced to go into hiding or other things. And so this has provided another sort of avenue for incentivizing and fostering complaint as a strategy for handling differences rather than, say, sitting there and talking things out with people. And also, this is something we don't address as much in the book, but it's definitely part of it, provides for the creation of these kind of echo chambers. And you get these on all sides of the political spectrum and ideological groups and whatnot. But people enforcing each other's morality so it becomes more and more extreme in various ways and people are trying to signal to each other that you know i'm the virtuous one here i'm part of the in crowd and that also incentivizes certain extremes of complaints and sensitivity there's even more going on 
here because your book begins with a story from Oberlin College right? where there was the claim that somebody had seen somebody wearing Ku Klux Klan regalia <laughs> on campus. Yeah. And it turns out, as you, again, very delicately point out, it turned out to be a woman wrapped in a blanket. Now, there was another episode, not <laughs> n- not exaggerated as much as this one, but mm. in which a, um, I don't remember which university, but I wrote about it in my email newsletter, where – Again, a student said it looks like there's some kind of clan activity going on. And what they were actually seeing was an overhead projector with a cover on it through a window. Oh, my. And so the student, <laughs> again, came to the conclusion, astonishing to me, mm. that just openly on a college campus of all places – there was a Klan meeting going on. Mm. Now, there are – nobody in the world defends the Klan today, and that's precisely the point. The Klan is about as isolated a minority as you could imagine, and minority they are. There are basically no Klan members. The likelihood that you in your life are ever going to stumble on a Klan meeting uh, <laughs> is, is zero. I mean you have a greater chance of being struck by lightning five times in the course of your life, and yet, <laughs> yet we have many people who are ready to believe that that's not only likely but indeed quite plausible, even at a place like Oberlin. Mm-hmm. So how do we account for that? So not just that we have the trigger warnings and the microaggressions and the safe spaces, but also this willingness, almost an eagerness to believe right. the wildest – most implausible things that are completely tone deaf with regard to how American society really functions. Right. I mean, some of it's a lot of people just don't have a, a accurate gauge of how the world works, uh, young people especially. So, but yeah, the Oberlin clan sighting was in a lot of ways the thing that inspired our whole project. And this is back in, in 2013. And just the idea that, you know, for anyone listening and doesn't know, Oberlin is a small, private, progressive college. It's really known for a lot of progressive activism and, and being very strong into anti-racist activism. So the idea that there'd be a Klan den in Oberlin of all places, and like you said, there's not a whole lot of Klan members left. They're out there, but you got to figure, this is a country of 317 million people. You can find 2,000 people for anything, any sort of group, You know, whether it's lizards run the government or Stalin apology or whatever. But yeah, this, they're not common. And they're not at elite private liberal arts schools known for progressivism. And people were so prepared to believe, yes, there's Klansmen in our midst. It's a really strange thing. Our first way of trying to understand that was through the work of a 19th century sociologist named Durkheim, a French sociologist. And one of his ideas is that groups need deviance. People need to have some sort of threat or enemy they manufacture. And so his idea was that even in a society of saints where people's conduct would be unimpeachable by our standards, there would still be sinners because they would just find the least saintly among them and brand that person a sinner and treat things that to us wouldn't be a big deal as being horrible sins. Kind of uh, okay. Okay. If, if I can, can I, I, I generally yeah. don't interrupt a guest, but there's just an, yeah. a, an example that just comes readily to mind. Yeah. I've, I've had a, a lot of association with traditional Latin mass Catholicism. Mm. And I, I know a parish where, because, uh, and the American bishops, let's say, are not super sympathetic to this, but they, mm. some of them will hold their noses and tolerate people like us. So mm. there's one parish where they gave these traditional Catholics everything they wanted. Mm-hmm. They could have the old Latin mass. They could have all the sacraments in the in the old rites. From it would be like Vatican II never occurred. They could have mm-hmm. everything they wanted. Mm-hmm. So there was now there's nothing for them to be fighting about. They they would all be happy. Mm-hmm. And then they started arguing about 
well, which translation of the Fatima prayer are you using in the rosary? And then that became the big – they had to root that up. So it, maybe it's an illustration of what you're saying. They, there's nothing – there's no objective reason for them to be fighting other than this natural inclination to find enemies and root them out. Right, and so approaching it from that way, you have, the, you have these social settings like you know, modern progressive campuses where – you know, there's a great deal of equality and toleration and diversity and very strong anti-racist ethics and anti-sexist ethics. And you see these two phenomena. One is, you know, very tiny things, things that until last week weren't considered wrongs at all, being defined as wrong. Suddenly this is racist, that's racist, whatever. And you also have like the Klan example of people either making up or mistakenly believing that there's you know, phantom activity out there, you know, severe things that are happening that aren't actually happening, whether it's it's an intentional hoax, uh, like someone slashing their own tires and drawing the swastika on their own car to show they've been victims of uh, all the neo-Nazis who hang around elite private liberal arts schools, or whether it's somebody you know making what I guess you could call an honest mistake, but a fairly silly one if you know how the world works, of thinking this woman wrapped in a blanket is a Klan's member, and then everyone who hears the story believing it. And part of what's going on that we talk about in the book is that when you have a moral system that's based around claims of victimhood and around arranging people into a hierarchy of victims who should be trusted and supported and, and believed at all costs, and, and then oppressors who are everywhere and their tendrils reach far and wide through society, it primes you to be ready to believe any sort of accusation as long as the villain and the victim are the right identities. As long as, long as you've got the who whom correct, there's a very high degree of credulity about certain kinds of accusation. And you find it's part of the worldview of a lot of these activists that, you know, and I'm not saying like there's no racists out there or anything like that. Everybody knows there are, but the idea that there's, there's Klansmen lurking around Oberlin or something like that, or you get these various hate crime hoaxes involving nooses being hanged around campuses, supposedly a reference to lynching in, in the Jim Crow era, and a lot of those that turn out to be hoaxes. And you start seeing these patterns of someone's stereotype of what a hate crime is, right? Sure. The stereotype of the boogeyman sort of racist that's in their mind cropping up on these campuses where those people exactly are least likely to be. And everyone's willing to believe it, though, because they think this threat is everywhere. And you're not supposed to at all be credulous of complaints of victimization or of tales, no matter how outlandish they might seem, because that shows you're a bad ally or disbelieving minorities. Or maybe you're secretly supporting this you know, Klansman who's hanging around the campus. Why are you against the witch hunt? Are you supporting witches? Are you a witch? That sort of thing. Well, I, I was looking back at a few examples of some hoaxes, like, for example— this actually wasn't a, a, a hoax. It was more um, lack of information, and then they just assumed the worst. On the Vanderbilt campus, you had the case where somebody left a bag full of dog dew uh -huh. uh, just outside, I guess it was a black student center or something like that. And mm -hmm. so naturally, naturally the first inclination must be, well, this is, you know, this is a racist attack. But it turned out that it was a blind woman on campus mm -hmm. and she doesn't know where all the trash cans are located. So she thought, well, I'm going to just try and leave it somewhere where maybe somebody can dispose of it. 
And so then it, it was obviously a source of embarrassment because the Black Students Association had already blown up and they had already formed their conclusion about what happened. But mm. then it just became a question of the hierarchy of oppression because <laughs> then she portrayed it as, well, we disabled people are subject to oppression on campus too. And then you got to weigh which one. So, all right. So you have material in here on trigger warnings and safe spaces. And I think we're all familiar with these concepts, but what is it that you're bringing to the study of these things that's fresh and new, given that you're looking at it from the point of view of an academic discipline? Well, one thing we're trying to do is organize all these disparate things into a sort of coherent pattern. And we think the common denominator across like the safe spaces, the trigger warnings, uh, the microaggression complaints, the hate crime hoaxes, is this moral system that privileges and has supreme concern for people defined as victims and at the same time has this hostility towards those defined as privileged or as oppressors and a kind of Manichaean worldview that you're either one or the other or you're somewhere in a hierarchy of them and rights and duties differ depending on that. And one difference I think we have from some contemporary takes is we do view this as a moral issue. This is a, a moral worldview that people have, which is different from just saying that you know people are you know, the, the kids are snowflakes is a common criticism. They need safety because they're they're cowardly and, and they're they're too sensitive and they can't handle the real world. But you know, in some of these cases, you see the activists at the forefront of some of this stuff are willing to take risks. Or even you know, sometimes get violent as, as they have at a couple of incidents uh, with conservative speakers on campus being attacked or the riots at Berkeley and so forth. So it's not just a general culture of safetyism. And there might be part of it, but it's also a moral worldview where people are outraged about something and taking sides reactively. And their concern with safety doesn't necessarily apply to everybody equally because you know some are more privileged than others. And if you're privileged, you don't deserve safety. You don't need it. And you might not even deserve or need basic courtesy, which is why you, you get things like the arguments that, you know, you can say whatever you want about whites or men or whoever, and it's not racism. Even if you say, you know, kill all white people, uh, whites are evil, you know, men need to die. That's not, that's not racism. That's not sexism because they have structural power and therefore it doesn't count. So you get this sort of who whom ideology uh, we don't think it's just a matter of people being snowflakes. It's an ideological or a moral worldview in which there are enemies and there are allies and people act accordingly. That's one part of it. Another thing we bring is, even though we spend a lot of time explaining this concept of moral cultures, victim culture, honor culture, dignity culture, that's not really our explanation of why you get these different patterns. This is the way of, of classifying it and describing it. Yeah. And as sociologists, we try to look at some of the deeper social trends that encourage patterns of morality and conflict to evolve one way versus another. Things like uh, the rise of the administrative bureaucracy on campus or the growth of social media and other factors we think are contributing to these changes. And what you're saying is is very helpful because I sometimes hear, not as much anymore, but I hear conservatives repeating talking points from the 1980s about moral relativism. Mm -hmm. But that's the last thing that's involved here. The people we're describing here are not moral relativists. They have their own competing morality. Mm -hmm. They're not saying that racism and anti-racism are – is a, that's a morally neutral distinction. 
Mm-hmm. And, you know, who's to say who's right and wrong? That is absolutely not what they're saying. It is a competing moral system. Now, I do want to just spend a, a few minutes on the discipline of sociology itself because you take practitioners of sociology to task <laughs> in this book because you say that – well, you say something that – let me just tell you, as somebody who's outside sociology, it's not exactly coming as a huge surprise to the rest <laughs> of us that sociology is or has become a form of of public advocacy for a particular point of view. And so I would like to know from you, when do you think that started? Or did sociology always have a kind of built-in bias? Mm. Yeah, that that chapter might not be the best chapter for my career, but mm, we'll see. Uh, Yeah, I know it. I know. But (laughs) but you did it. I mean, I was shocked to see that. You did it. Yeah. Uh, Yeah, to some extent, sociology has a long history of attracting reform-minded people, people who wanted to learn about society as a means of improving it in some way or or offering some solutions. And so that goes back very, very deep into the history of the field. But some of the more specific problems we have that we, we address in that chapter really started ramping up around the 1960s with the rise of you know, radical movements in the U.S. and that influence on sociology. This is the point where Karl Marx gets defined as a founder of the field. Now, obviously, Marx had been around for a long time, but he wasn't really considered part of the sociological canon until around that time period. He never even called himself a sociologist. He was an economist, a philosopher, and other things. But he becomes you know, one of the revered holy trinity of founders that people like to talk about in my field around the 1960s. And I don't want to like go into knee-jerk blanket condemnation of everything Marx ever wrote, even though his influence on the 20th century was nightmarish. If you like look at some of the models of society, there's things in there that might be useful ideas to extract, like the idea of the importance of economic systems for shaping culture and things like that. But the influence on sociology has mostly not been good, in my opinion. <laughs> it's It's mostly been uh, people latch onto the morality tale aspect of his work, the more ideological part that views all of society as a great struggle between two sides, the oppressor group, the, the ruling class, and, and the oppressed group, and analyzes all things in that way, often in, in ways that aren't producing any sort of scientifically testable explanations or hypotheses. It's just kind of after-the-fact classifying of who the good guys and the bad guys are. And you see this influence spreading throughout the field and taking different forms. And it's called conflict theory in in my field. And again, there's good versions of it. There's more sober versions of looking at intergroup struggle or inequality and how the dynamics of elites versus non-elites can shape some phenomenon. But a lot of it's heavily ideological. It's complaining and giving a morality tale more than it is explaining or trying to analyze things. And so that thread has been growing in the field for a while. And in a lot of ways, this is the intellectual source of some of the victimhood culture stuff you see on campus. A lot of the ideologues, their talking points are ideas that have been circulating in sociology now for decades. But we saw a sort of acceleration over the past several decades of the extent to which sociology has become synonymous with activism. When you go back to even in the 1960s when the radical elements were having their influence, there was still a sort of intellectual seriousness about it. And a lot of people in the field were just taking it for granted. This is a a field meant to explain social behavior. It's meant to come up with theories of behavior. And you still had a lot of, there was still the dominant 
view, I think, even if it was coupled with a view of, okay, we're understanding things in order to be activists or in order to reform. It was the idea of explaining coming first. And I have, I have no quantitative data on this. We cite a ton of examples in the chapter from things like uh, topics of American Sociological Association meetings to the pedigrees of some of the recent presidents, including one who said sociology's goal is to advocate democratic socialism. Warner wrote a book, Liberation Sociology, which is a callback to the Marxist-inspired liberation theology and other examples. The activists seem to be in a much stronger position in the field than they used to be. And that's just to create a self-selection effect. It's getting harder, I think, to find people coming into this field because they're interested in a scientific approach to human behavior. If you're a student studying at a university, you wouldn't even necessarily get that impression depending on what classes you took or who your instructors were. And so there's a kind of filter now for what sort of people we attract and what their interests are. And honestly, it's a little bit depressing as someone who would rather have a field that analyzes and explains things. And I got into it because I like doing that kind of nerdy stuff and was fascinated by human behavior and how it worked and what the patterns were. And it's a big diverse field, right? So I always wince a little bit about tarring the whole thing with one brush. If you look at a edition of our top journal, American Sociological Review. You'll see a lot of solid empirical work in there, people doing real research of real data. But you'll also look at, say, our national organization and its annual meetings. And the organization seems to have been taken over pretty heavily by the ideologues. And our meeting themes are often overtly ideological. And you know, the awards and who gets the recognition in that organization is often overtly ideological. So this decay of sociology of a science, I think, has accelerated, even in my career. And I'm young. I just got my PhD seven years ago. Are you tenured? Yes. <laughs> Thank goodness. All right. <laughs> Thank goodness. Jason, just a quick message before we continue. Many of my listeners know I spend a lot of time in New York visiting friends and being up to no good. And later this month, I have a special destination when I go there, and that is the Indochino Showroom. Indochino is North America's leading made-to-measure menswear company. You really, really look your best when you are wearing a made-to-measure suit. And you can order online, and it couldn't be easier, and you can customize that suit down to the last detail if you like. But it turns out my promo code also works in the showroom, so I'm going to give that a try. There really isn't any excuse any longer for wearing an ill-fitting suit, especially when made-to-measure suits are now available at such great prices. They make suits and shirts to your exact measurements for an unparalleled fit and comfort. Well, this week, my listeners can get any premium Indochino suit for just $359 at Indochino.com when entering Woods at checkout. That's 50% off the regular price for a made-to-measure premium suit. Plus, shipping is free. That's Indochino.com, promo code WOODS, for any premium suit for just $359 and free shipping. That's an incredible deal for a premium made-to-measure suit. All right, uh, th there's a lot in this book. I mean, it, it's really, really uh, quite detailed. I mean, it, it, you seem to know, either you know every relevant campus incident, or there are so many more than I could even dream of that <laughs> you just scratched a little surface and found all these. But, you know, and as I read your concluding chapter, you know, I mean, obviously you're, you're a chronicler. You, you can't single-handedly change a cultural phenomenon. So you don't at the end say, well, here's what we can do to fix this, or if we do X or Y, maybe this will go away. But people are going to want some, I mean, by the way, you also cover free speech on campus. I mean, there's a lot of stuff in here. Mm -hmm. But but people are going to want some kind of a resolution at the end. I mean, what have we, 
how are we better off for now being able to – I mean, I guess it's better to understand a phenomenon than just be frustrated by it. Mm-hmm. But if this were ever to change, where could the change come from? Mm. That's that's one of the more frustrating aspects of you know, this work. I mean, ideally understanding something – and if you think it's a problem, if you understand it, you would have very clear solutions. But – Sometimes problems are very hard to solve at a practical level, even if you have a good handle, even if our theory is right about what's led up to these changes. Walking them back is not necessarily simple because we're talking about things that are big, you know, macro social trends that no one person is well positioned to roll back or maybe that we don't even want to roll back. Some of these things we don't like might be negative consequences of changes that are otherwise positive, right? Um, like one of the things we talk about is you know, the sensitivity to racism and sexism and, and the tendency to define seemingly harmless things as being that might be a side effect of actually stamping out a lot of the severe racism and sexism. And we're, we're in favor of that, but we just wish we wouldn't have this overcorrection. And we talk about things like that might be more feasible, such as rolling back the scale of the administrations on campuses. Now, the roadmap for how you do that, I'm not sure. That requires some more thinking about how you organize and exert pressure and how you even get a bureaucracy to trim itself, which is not the easiest thing in the world. They tend to just grow indefinitely until they run out of resources. But that's one strategy we, we have hit upon is if the growth of administration and increasing involvement of administration in the lives of young people is driving some of these trends, then try to scale that back try to prune some of that. Another direction we discuss is getting young people you know, more practiced in other ways of handling conflict. I mean, if the problem is sort of a self-reinforcing cycle of you've been encouraged to handle your conflicts by complaining and therefore you don't know how to handle them in any other way, so you're more likely to complain in the future, therefore you never really learn how to handle your grievances by, say, talking things out with people, explaining, oh, what you said was kind of offensive, or I thought so, here's why I thought so, what did you mean by that, and maybe we can find a way to not get on each other's nerves in the future. And that might be a more productive thing than shaming someone on Twitter or complaining to the administration or whatnot. Well, how do you get people practiced in handling their conflicts in these ways that we might see as as more productive? One thing to do might be to try to encourage young people having space to do this. So free play, the free range parenting movement, trying to support people who are getting in trouble for like letting their kids play alone at the park or walk, you know, two blocks to the store or whatever, and encouraging people to give your kids this unstructured time where they can deal with other people their age and and learn to manage their issues without having an adult five feet away. And that might be another potential solution, training people in alternative ways of handling their grievances uh, by encouraging free range parenting or a decline in what they call helicopter parenting. That's another potential path. Well, I mean, I certainly encourage those things. And uh, mm. I uh, see from my point of view, now that I'm I'm out of academia, I have a PhD in history, but I'm out of academia. I'm able to support myself doing, just producing stuff that people seem to like. And that means I can do and say anything I want. And for me, almost any topic 
that comes up, I want to try and study and give a, at least a semi-academic response. Like we have the financial crisis. Mm-hmm. I wrote a book trying to figure out what exactly the cause of that was. Mm-hmm. But with something like this, I know your response has been very measured and scholarly, and my response has just been outright ridicule. Not <laughs> not so much because I expect to convert these people with ridicule, mm-hmm. but because I want to knock them off their uh, self-righteous moral perch Mm-hmm. where they, they believe themselves to be morally superior to everybody. Mm-hmm. No, I think the more I can show them to be – I mean, and the thing is, this kind of conflates me with a lot of pop right-wing critics because the easiest thing in the world to criticize are spoiled college kids complaining about nothing. That That's easy. Mm-hmm. And, I, and I don't necessarily like to look like just them because I'm – I have a lot of differences uh, with them, but mm-hmm. doggone it, I can't help myself. And so I feel like <laughs> the best you can do is the crazier it gets, the better, because you mm-hmm. can just warn people about it. And I think most Americans, even though they do share some some uh, of the concerns of people on campuses, I still think the majority of Americans don't think it's a good thing when Jordan Peterson is giving a, a speech and the protesters who've been removed are banging on the doors mm-hmm. saying, lock them up and burn it down. Right. You know, I think it's good for that to be publicized yeah. because I think Americans should know this. And the more they know about it and the more repulsed they are by it, the better. Mm-hmm. And, and that's because, because, as I say, sitting these people down when, as you say, they live in a completely different moral universe mm-hmm. and trying to persuade them one by one. I wish they hadn't walled themselves off in this way, but unfortunately they have. So it seems to me the only tool I have is just to and and it's just to ridicule them. And, and by ridiculing them, I don't have to call them names. All I have to do is just highlight what they're doing. I mean, really, <laughs> all I'm doing is giving them free publicity. Am I wrong to respond that way? What, what do you think I should be doing? Oh, I'm not sure. Um. <laughs> <laughs> I'm asking a lot of you that you're not my therapist. <laughs> <laughs> or, or a rabbi or anything like that. But um, I, I don't know. I, I'm wary of digging in and ridiculing just because you get the, the cycle of, of polarization. And like you said, no one's convinced by any. To some extent, you, you're right that exposing this more widely might be valuable because a lot of normal people – you know, they don't live on campuses. They spend time around academics and other, you know, they don't even have much interaction maybe with the HR department at their place of work. And they might not know how far the trends are going in some places or give much thought to this is coming down the pike. You know, these these kids you're saying aren't prepared for the real world now will be your HR director in 10 years. Yeah, exactly right. Exactly right. And and, the, and also these are people who want to be in influential political positions and they're going to mm-hmm. tell you uh, how you should live. So my thinking is that if there's one thing these universities care about more than the existing double standard where some people's grievances uh, mean we drop everything and cater to them mm-hmm. and other people's other people don't even exist. Mm-hmm. Uh, if there's if there's one thing they care about more than that, it's money. <laughs> and and if if I can let the alumni know what's going on at their university mm-hmm. and I can get them maybe to close their wallets, mm-hmm. uh, you know, that that's one good function that, and uh, you know, just a typical guy like me can perform. Right. And as someone who, who works at the university currently um – I can't exactly get on the defunding train. Well, no, I understand that, uh, right? But you know, but I would understand why an outsider would consider that uh, a sanction on the table. Right. And I think for those of us on the inside, that's a real danger of if we can't bring some sanity. I mean, why would, especially like in, I'm in West Virginia, this is a red state. Why would the people here want 
any of their their tax money or government support going to support people who think you know you know, make fun of the crackers all you want to it's not really racism they deserve it and that kind of thing yeah why would people in conservative states support universities where conservatives aren't allowed to speak yeah it's crazy and people really need to start thinking about you know if we don't control this on our end it could get ugly budgets being slashed and, and people just saying all right well now we're going to get some government control. That could, that's another option that might happen too is you might get people advocating for more government micromanaging of what universities are allowed to say, which is not something I think either side in the mainstream right now is looking for, but that could be the result. Well, I appreciate your time today. The book is The Rise of Victimhood Culture, Microaggressions, Safe Spaces, and the New Culture Wars by Bradley Campbell and our guest today, Jason Manning. Uh, best of luck in, in your career, and but we respect that you've, you know, you've in, in effect stepped out onto that third rail and um, you know, it will benefit a lot of people who will thereby understand things better. And so you've done something important regardless of what happens. So thanks again. I appreciate it. Thank you. Have a good day. Thanks. All right, folks. Remember, we are on for 2019. The Contra Cruise is setting sail for Alaska. It's going to be the best one yet. Joining us will be favorite guests of the Tom Woods Show, Gene Epstein, as well as Brad Berzer and his wife, Deidre. It's going to be a tremendous time, but make sure you sign up soon so you get one of our early bird bonuses. So check it all out at ContraCruise.com, and I'll see you tomorrow. Become a smarter libertarian in just 30 minutes a day. Visit TomWoods.com to subscribe to the show for free, and we'll see you next time.